0: Rabbanim, they're good people. Most of them are, are good people who care and give them their time and effort to help other individuals. And many times, at you know, like absolutely they don't get any, any money for it. They don't, you know. So that's, I think the majority of rabbis, you know, are are good public servants. But the fact is that even though they mean well in this field, many times they they mess up in a very big way and, uh As a result of that, they trip up the individual that they're trying to help.
1: I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. There is, thankfully, much greater awareness of mental illness today than there was in the past. This naturally leads to the question of how much mental health should affect halacha or Jewish law. Is someone with an eating disorder permitted to eat on Yom Kippur? Or perhaps the question really is, is that person allowed to fast? If a person suffering from PTSD needs to smoke on Shabbat, is there room to be lenient? If the key question is how mental illness is related to Sakhanat Nefashot, a danger to life, how can a determination like that be made that's both medically reasonable and halachically proper? Many rabbis, though certainly well-meaning, simply are not aware of how mental health concerns intersect with halacha. And when it comes to pastoral counseling and giving non halachic advice, rabbis might be even more in the dark and can unwittingly cause serious damage. Rav Yoni Rosenzweig is at the forefront of bringing awareness of mental illness into the rabbinic community. He's written a book on the subject, and he's starting an institute so that rabbis acquire the knowledge necessary in order to appropriately confront these issues. I'll speak with Ravioni in just a moment. First, let me remind you to please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Also, go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. Just search for The Orthodox Conundrum, give it between zero and five stars, and write a sentence or two. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are available only to subscribers. You'll also be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, halachically committed, and honest Orthodoxy. So make sure you sign up to Patreon right away. It's just a few bucks a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining our team on Jewish Coffeehouse. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can help you start. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in a single day, or record, relax, and let us do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work for you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and sign up for a free 30-minute consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. Ravioni Rosenzweig is the rabbi of the Netzach Menashe community in Beit Shemesh, a Ram in Midrash at Lindebaum, and author of several books. I was honored to speak with him today about this very important issue. Ravioni Rosenzweig, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. My pleasure. Happy to be here. And I want to wish you a Rafuash I know you've recently been waylaid with a bout of COVID, and hopefully you're feeling better.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that.
1: So let's open up with the concept of mental illness in halacha, because certainly in Jewish law there is a concept of some sort of mental illness. The idea of a shote, somebody who's mentally incompetent, perhaps we can say, does exist. On the other hand, that's a very specific definition. Halacha gives very specific definitions to define somebody as a shote, for example, who is patur, exempt from each vote. Are there additional reasons to believe that mental illness, in the broader sense, should play a role in determining halacha? I think it's
0: important to understand, uh, as an answer to this question, uh, the basics of, uh, and I'm not going to go into it too much, but the basics of the development of our awareness of mental health. And this is not specific to the Jewish world. I think it's true uh, throughout the entire world. The last, I would say, 40 years have been revolutionary in terms of the way that we look and understand Mental health. So, when, as you said correctly, when um, Chazal talked about a shote, what they were talking about in modern terms would be something uh, more akin to a psychosis. Meaning, we're talking about something which is quite extreme in terms of its practical uh, kind of like uh, ramification and uh, expression. In other words, if I put it too differently, Chazal, like I said, like the rest of the world, were more aware of the extremes. Than they were of the gray areas that we talk about today. You don't find, or at least it's a baklokit if you can even find, let's say, a discussion of depression. Depression, uh, in the Gemara, depression is not something which is so clear-cut. People sometimes get up in the morning and they're just not feeling good, or they're in a bad mood, or they're sad, or all kinds of things. And to differentiate between that, and a proper clinical depression is not something that's so simple to do so when you look at the Gemara and Chagiga, they talk about someone who is tearing his clothing or he's sleeping in cemeteries or he's you know walking in dangerous areas so that that seems like a very very clear sign of someone who is mentally challenged uh, in a very severe way all the gray all that other stuff That was something that was uh, identified later. So therefore, you might say, I'm going back to your question, you might say, okay, so maybe that's all there is. Maybe all there is from a Allahic perspective is like a form of uh, psychosis. That's definitely not true. How do we know that's not true? We know that's not true. First of all, there are some sources that discuss other forms of mental illness uh, in certain ways, obviously not very, very developed. But the more important thing here is that uh, halacha doesn't depend on the names. In other words, whether we have a, a specific diagnosis and you want to call it whatever you want to call it, uh, it It won't matter. Everybody will agree that the practical expression exists. Let me give you just one example for that. Please. From uh, 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 modern and secular uh, discussions of uh, mental illness. Uh, there is a diagnosis that appears in the DSM-5, DID dissociative identity disorder. Now, I've spoken to several psychiatrists who kind of like smile at the definition and they say to me, that doesn't really exist. Meaning what they mean is, they're not denying that people dissociate sometimes, what they're denying is that there's a diagnosis. They would rather take that name and, and put it somewhere else, put it into some other box, into some other rubric. In other words, there is no real machloket, there's no real disagreement that people go through suffering. The only question is how you would define the suffering sometimes. So all I'm saying is the same thing here. Just because we didn't find the names, the categories, the pr- those sorts of things uh, in the Gemara or in the poskim, wouldn't mean that the halacha has something to say about them because halacha has something to say about suffering of any kind, regardless of whether it's been given a name yet or not. Today, we can give a name to it and say, what would the, the Allah say about depression? What would the halacha say about OCD? What would the halacha say about anxiety? But even if those names didn't exist once, the person in front of me is suffering, and he needs a response. And for that, there's no doubt that the halacha responds to that. Well,
1: what would be examples of how the halacha would respond to that sort of thing? Let me give you a simple example. I was once driving with somebody, and he told me that he absolutely needs to smoke or vape on Shabbos. His psychological health depends upon it. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a post To me, I'd be like, you just have to learn how to deal with it. But maybe a mental health professional would say, no, his life depends on it. There's that gray area, as you mentioned before. I don't necessarily want you to talk about that case, but how do you deal with cases like that?
0: Right. So um, the first thing that we need to kind of uh, know is whether there is a professional we can go to. What I mean, by, I'm, I'm talking about it on, a, on a principle level. Meaning, the rabbis long ago, already in the times of the Gemara, when medicine was not as uh, you know uh, uh, supported by uh, you know by proof as it is today, already then the rabbis said we rely on the doctors. We rely on the doctors, whatever they say. Um, that's what we do. And in terms of Yom Kippur, Kared, lots of things. Also here with mental health, at the end of the day, the first question we ask is. Is there a professional, meaning do we look at these individuals, the psychiatrists, psychologists, and say they're like doctors in physical health in the sense that whatever they say, we take as gospel, we take as, a, as, a, as an MS, you know, as a truth, you know, is that what we're saying? And generally, I would say that over time, and like I said, especially in the last 30, 40 years, the faith, uh, the trust that we have in uh, mental health professionals has grown has grown amongst the rabbis um, and therefore we would say that there's a professional so we can always just ask a professional and ask him what do you think about this case but that's not always enough meaning it's not just enough about the professional we really need to figure out a lot of times is whether there's really a connection to a mental health concern in the thing that the person is saying so if a person says you know i just really need to smoke right like the example that you gave Uh, So I would say to the person, look, what do you mean you just really need to smoke? What does it give you? What does it do for you? What happens if you don't smoke? Meaning, explain to me the ramifications. However, sometimes, let's say a person has gone through uh, a trauma, right? And he has suffering from PTSD. There are individuals with PTSD who uh, definitely need to smoke on Shabbat. And I would definitely give them a header to smoke on Shabbat, um, depending, of course, on what they're going through and, and how bad things are. But that's definitely a reality that you could imagine happening.
1: Presumably, when you give that there, that allowance to smoke on Shabbat for somebody who's suffering from PTSD and who needs that, I'm assuming it's coming from a place of pikuach nefesh, that it actually is a danger to life. Is it because of a fear of suicide, or do we expand the boundaries of the concept of pikuach nefesh to include mental health also to say that Even if the person in question is not likely to die by suicide, nevertheless, the person will be ill enough that that's considered a case of pikuach nefesh.
0: Right. That's a great question because it it opens up like a a really important point with regards to all mental health questions. I'll explain what that is. First of all, I would say, just to answer directly your question and then to explain it, yes, I would consider it a case of pikuach nefesh, or I should say, more specifically, suffix pikuach nefesh. Uh, but let me explain why that is. When it comes to Pikuach Nefesh, we think of two things with regards to physical health. We think about Pikuach Nefesh and we think about Choleshe Yeshbo Sakana. Those aren't exactly the same things. A Pikuach Nefesh situation is like a person who's drowning. So we say a person's drowning, it's Pikuach Nefesh. You could do whatever you need to do to save that person. You could violate Shabbat, you could violate whatever. Uh, right now, they are in danger. A e Choleshe Yeshbo Sakana is not someone who's drowning right now, but he is in danger. Let's say someone who's chas v'shalom, God forbid, is um, dying from cancer. So you might say that person is a chole sakana, meaning there are things that, he, that we need to do for him, not because he'll die right now, but it, he's deteriorating. So we know that he's deteriorating, and therefore we might allow certain things on Shabbat, you know, et cetera, et cetera, because otherwise his situation will continue to deteriorate and he's a. That's, that's different. He's not dying in a sense right this moment, but he is in a process. Uh, and that process gives him the status of a. Okay. When it comes to mental health, the situation is a little bit more complicated because the problem with mental health is you usually can't see, not usually, you just can't see the threat. In other words, the person says, I am suffering from depression. Where? Where is the depression? You, you can't just put him in an MRI. And see the depression on the MRI, meaning even if certain areas of the brain, you know, may sometimes you know uh, glow or whatever, you know, you can't see the depression per se. Not like you can see a tumor, not like you can see other things, and you certainly can't just like pull it out, you know, and uh, and hope for the best, right? So that's that's not happening uh, in the case of mental health. As a result of that, it's very hard to pinpoint and say how bad things are. You could say, oh, it's a big growth or a small growth. With a depression, how are you going to say if it's a big depression or a small depression? So obviously there are ways for mental health professionals to try and, you know, give an expression to that. But uh, the point is that it's it's definitely uh, more of an art, I would say, than a science. And many times, no two mental health professionals will agree on how exactly to define a specific given scenario. All right. So all that is kind of like an introduction. All right. When it comes to diagnosing and deciding, inevitably, invariably, what you'll get is usually like uh, ifs and buts. In other words, you're not going to get like a clear-cut statement. Doctors will times say, this person has X amount of months to live. Or if we don't do this, such and such will happen. I don't think almost any mental health professional will give you such clear-cut statements regarding the people that they're caring for. They will say maybe, and they'll say, I think, and they'll say it could be, and all kinds of things like that. No one will ever guarantee if we don't do this, that person will suicide. If we don't do this, that person will take their own life. If we don't do this, in three months, he's dead. They don't know that. The brain is a its a wondrous place. No one knows exactly how the mind works and what ways it can be affected. And, and no one knows the future and all kinds of things happen. And whatever it's 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 some to some extent it's guesswork on the part of the mental health professional once again i don't mean to belittle what they do uh like i said it's guesswork that's based on a certain tools and 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 things that they have that they've learned you know and i have respect for it we have to understand the language that's what's important for me to to, to give over here we have to understand the language that's being used that's why if a posek if a rabbi is listening to a mental health professional listening to him talk And what he thinks he heard was that, oh, I'm not so sure it's so bad. That's not what you heard necessarily. That's just the way they talk about the the condition. That's how they talk about the disorder. Just because they said it as a suffix, as a doubt, doesn't mean it's not serious. It just means they're not willing to commit because they can't commit as much as a doctor for physical health can commit to something that's going on. So therefore, even a statement that's mentioned kind of like as a, as a maybe and a suffix and a shema, you know, should be taken with all seriousness. So at the end of the day, right, what we're looking for is more a question of statistical probability than it is of a, of a certainty. And therefore, when someone says to me, okay, this person has PTSD, right, he'll, have, he'll, he'll be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'll say, okay, what are the chances that person will take their own lives, Right. I am not looking for a certainty and I can never get a certainty that there is like, I don't know, an 80 percent chance or 90. I doubt that you'll get such percentages. You know, it's very hard for a mental health professional to commit to that. However, what you can get is statistics across the board, meaning people with PTSD. What's the usual course? What's the usual development? What happens to a certain percentage of them, et cetera? And I think that that's the number that matters with someone. Who went through a trauma. Now I'm coming back to Angela's question. With someone who went through a trauma and at the end of the day falls into a certain bracket considering their history, considering what's going on, considering the fact that they may be at the beginning of their process, and it's known that in such a situation they will suffer flashbacks, they will suffer a reliving of the trauma uh, if they don't have certain things to help them through it, like smoking, et cetera. Then I would consider the smoking to yes, be a tool to prevent pikuach nefesh, to prevent a a situation of sakana, without a doubt, even though I can't know that about that specific person, but this is as good as it gets. This is as much as you can know in this field. That's the bottom line.
1: Isn't there a chance, Rav Yoni, that that can work in the other direction of allowing a rabbi to become too lenient in certain situations? Because if a person has diabetes or heart disease or cancer, when you're able to put a number and say, well, obviously there are no guarantees in any direction, but this should be okay. A doctor or physician can say fasting on Yom Kippur should be okay or should not be okay for this person. You will know what you're talking about. But let's say, using our example of PTSD, I'm just making up numbers right now, and someone says, yes, there's a 2% chance that not smoking will make him upset enough or stressed out enough that it could eventually lead to a or situation. How does a rabbi even deal with that? Well, now we're talking about 2% isn't nothing, but it's very low, but it's also not nothing. It just seems like, I don't mean slippery slope in that it's a negative, but more almost, and I don't want to use the term free-for-all, but I'm not even sure how a person could really decide what that number is, where, oh, if it's 1%, it's okay. If it's 3%, it's not. What would you say to that?
0: 100%. Uh, that, that's a very good point. Uh, so let me answer it in two parts to that question. I, I saw exactly what you were talking about here, when the question of the Zoom Seder came up uh, in Corona, when um, everyone was talking about, you know, the parents being alone and, you know, should we leave on the Zoom from before Chag, et cetera, et cetera. And there were two general responses and I, I disagreed with both. I disapproved I of disapproved both. One, one, one basically said, no, absolutely not. You can't do it. It's not right, you know, et cetera. And the other one was, of course, we have to allow it, you know, et cetera. And, and I felt that there was, it was lacking nuance to a very large degree. And why? Because those who said no under, under no circumstance, I mean, to me, obviously don't understand mental health and don't understand how certain situations can be very, very detrimental to an individual. And those who said yes, absolutely, obviously thought that they understand mental health to the extent that they were, in a sense, very, very sensitive to it, but didn't do any of the work to figure out whether this was true across the board, or whether this concern, this mental health concern, you know, maybe only applied in certain cases, right? So that's an example of a, if you will, slippery slope, where a person is sensitive to a mental health concern, applies it to the entire, you know, to entire swath of the population, and says, "Oh, all the old people need this, or else, you know, uh, X and Y and Z will happen." I mean, that's not true. So when I was asked, right? I went and I spoke to two mental health professionals, you know, two very well-respected psychiatrists, and I picked their brain and tried to figure out in which which situations it would be relevant and which situations it would not be relevant because it's really all, it's really not relevant in all situations. But there are definitely cases, and we can we can try and um, pinpoint them, see what they are, and say the heter, the leniency applies in these situations with a certain kind of history with a certain kind of situation. A person in a in, in a certain context. Meaning, we can try and give a broad outline of what that looks like, and pinpoint our advice so that it doesn't become a slippery slope but we just apply it across the board. Now, in terms of this, this is the second part. In terms of the specific question that you asked, I, I, from my book Nefshiba uh, Shelat'i, which is coming out, God willing, in a few months, uh, I wrote several appendices for this book, and one of the one of them was an appendix regarding. Uh, that you don't go after the majority with regards to pikuach nefesh. The question was, of course, okay, what's the what's this in every case? I mean, should you not get into a car because, you you know, is it pikuach nefesh to drive around? I mean, you can always uh, you know, you can say about everything, you know, there's a small, tiny, little chance, you know, so obviously it was just what the chance is. And I um, came out to several dozen, I don't remember how many pages it came out to, um but it was a long uh, piece that i wrote and i looked at all the different uh, opinions and cheetahs etc and there are different opinions on this but if you want to know what i wrote in the book i went with a certain um i would say uh, average opinion based on what's almost uh, more or less to say a five percent so in my opinion if there's a five percent statistic you know that talks about like one out of every 20 people you know in a similar similar situation you know, uh, might chas v'shalom, you know, take their own lives, then I think that 5% chance is something which definitely you should take into account, and it's considered a suffolk pikuach nefesh in that situation. Anything less than 5%, you'd have to, like, uh, evaluate case by case and, and make sure that it's really relevant.
1: I'll ask you about a specific case now, and I remind you and listeners that this is not a shiur, and this podcast is not a place where there's psakha So yeah. anything which Ravioni says, I'm sure you should ask your own, Rav. But I want to ask your opinion about a very specific case, which is about anorexia and Yom Kippur. If someone suffers from anorexia, what do you think about fasting on Yom Kippur?
0: Right. I appreciate by the way what you just said about uh, not passing off a podcast. That's a that's a good that, that's generally a good idea.
1: Yeah, good rule of thumb. A
0: hundred percent. Yes, uh, anorexia and Yom camper. Anorexia is one of, and yom camper is one of those rare situations where I have like an almost across the board consensus uh, from everybody that I spoke to, you know, uh, both him and mental health professionals. I spoke to um, I think it was five or six doctors different doctors uh, about anorexia just to make sure that the response that I was getting was kind of like reproducible, meaning that I got it again and again and again, and that I, I was sure that it was correct. Anorexia, there are, in a sense, four different situations which you need to take into account. Case number one is easy. It's a no-brainer. Uh, any rabbi uh, can tell you what the answer is here. Uh, in a case where the individual is already so underweight that uh, their, in a sense, their mental health has affected their physical health. Obviously, in that situation, they have to eat on Yom Kippur. Uh, There is no question about that, uh, because um, their physical health is in danger. And that's a classic case, right? And to eat normally. Of course, to eat normally, you know, absolutely. Absolutely, to do whatever the doctors say. Case number two is one where they're not underweight anymore, or not dangerously underweight not balanced anymore. Now, in order to explain the balanced part, I need to explain a little bit about anorexia. So anorexia, and I to know a little bit about it, know that this is true, uh, is not about beauty, right? I remember, uh, you know, one mother, mother once described to me uh, how, uh, you know, she saw her her daughter's arm when she was in dress or something. Suddenly, she saw that the arm was all bony You know, she 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 described it like, you know, like pictures from the Holocaust, you know, like it's not about uh, beauty. Girls who are or boys suffer from anorexia, you know, are not necessarily beautiful. They they uh, just it's about control. It's about it's about control. And it's hard to know always why it develops and what happens there. But That's what it's about. And the reason that that's important to realize is because it's also important to realize that it's similar to an addiction. You can look online and you'll see, You know, it's not officially an addictive disorder. Um, it's not listed together with uh, you know alcohol and, and drugs, et cetera, et cetera, but it's very similar in, in terms of certain properties to an addiction. And so the person, right? The moment that they feel that high, in a sense of being in control of what they eat, and for some individuals, uh, it's the only thing they're in control of in their life, which is why it's so addictive for them, then they fall back into the same patterns, the same destructive eating disorder patterns. The result of that is that if the person is not yet balanced, meaning let's say they're not underweight because, okay, they've been given a tube and their body is better, et cetera, et cetera. But even one fast, even one 24-hour, 25-hour fast could have them slip back into their eating disorder patterns, their destructive patterns, Um, And therefore, you don't want to give them that high. You don't want to take a chance. For people listening to the first time or rabbis, they they can't even imagine, right? They say, oh, one day, like, what's the big deal? So
1: you're saying it's almost like one drink for an alcoholic. That's right. It's a
0: big deal. It's a very big deal. And it could easily cause a person to uh, deteriorate. In a moment, I'll talk talk about the statistics because that's very important. But let me uh, first finish the, the case's. So that's case number two. And in case number two, once again, I don't know any doctor who would say that that person shouldn't eat regularly on Yom Kippur and uh, drink, whatever the doctors say, in order to balance them, to get them you know, eating normally, drinking normally, uh, getting them into a regular diet, a regular program. That's pikoach that's nefesh, as far as we're concerned. The uh, third case is one where uh, the person... Has uh, has an eating disorder, but it's it's new. In other words, it's been it, it was caught early. When it was caught early, that's that's complicated to know because nothing yet is manifested. So it's hard to know what to do when when something is caught early. Uh, but I would say that it really depends here on the doctor's opinion, and you just have to ask uh, and see what they say. Uh, in some cases, the person might be able to fast and there's no problem, depending, once again, on the evaluation of the psychologist, psychiatrist. And in some cases, the person might say, no, 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 they're they're not, they're in like this limbo stage and you don't want to encourage that sort of uh, behavior. So it'll have to be uh, uh, something that you look at. The last case um, is one where the person has been well for a while. Those are the complicated cases, meaning let's say the person had, you know, a bad period you know with, uh, with with eating disorders with anorexia um but now they've been fine they've been balanced for let's say 2 or 3 or 5 or even 10 years you know so the question is should they fast and from what point should they fast this is very complicated and the reason is because once again you might say it's like a drink for an alcoholic so can an alcoholic ever in his life take a drink i assume at some point maybe some people might be able to take a drink and handle it but other people will say no 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 absolutely not you can never you can never do it even once, you know, etc. Right. You know, and you know that's the question over here, you know, as well with someone who has gone through an eating disorder and it's never really gone uh, to some extent. Um, but they're balanced now; they're balanced, and their life is good, etc. So, what to do? So, here I want to once again uh, be clear: the statistics on, on, on anorexia are horrifying, are absolutely horrifying, meaning the lower, I'm talking about the lower end. Of the statistics, uh, talk about uh, you know ten percent suicide. I'm not talking about people who are not under treatment. I'm talking about people who go through treatment, who go through programs. Those individuals, right? Ten percent—that's the lower uh, assumption. The, the, the higher evaluation talks about twenty even thirty percent. That's unbelievable, and that's definitely. And awkward. that's
1: just suicide.
0: That's yeah. I mean, the suicide or or dying from malnutrition. Mm. But yeah. Wow. So so those are the statistics of anorexia. They are wow is hundred percent correct. And it's it's unbelievable. And I don't think people always realize that it's so high, but it really is very, very high. So, and by the way, according to all the shetitas, all the opinions that I looked at, everybody agrees that if it's a 10%, that's Pikor Nefesh. So that means that that most people with anorexia uh, I mean fall into that. In other words, they fall into a situation where from the perspective from the Allahic perspective, they are in a Suffolk Pikuach Nefesh. So, therefore, should we take a chance, even with someone who is one year, or two years, or five years out, should we take a chance with someone like that and say to them, yeah, you can fast? So, that's complicated. I heard from one of the students of my Rebbe, Reverend Binovich, that he once uh, allowed for someone who was even uh, after like 20 years, she was balanced. He didn't, he told her not to fast, you know, on Yom Kippur. Obviously, not every rabbi would agree with that, but it would depend. In my book, my advice is twofold. Okay. Number one, and this is like my my line on this, you know, is you need to get the, you need to get a header to fast. Not not a fooch, not the opposite. Yeah. You no, know, most people need to get a header not to fast. But I think people with anorexia, if they want to fast, they need to get a header to fast. The default should be that they're not fasting. They want to fast, get a header. You know, that that should be the the mindset. Interesting. The second point, in terms of more specifically, I would say like this, if they think that they can fast, by the way, that doesn't say much necessarily because obviously the eating disorder wants you to fast, right? Like that could be part of the sickness. So
1: That's the insidious nature of it.
0: Of course. You know, so you ask a person, can you fast? Of course they can. They want to fast. What do you mean? So it doesn't always mean anything, right? But okay. But let's say if they th- if they feel that they are capable and their psychiatrist, psychologist uh, agrees that you know it's possible for them to go ahead and to fast, and uh, their life is generally like in a good place. In other words, they're in control, and and uh, and things are good and balanced, and there's no upheavals, you know, etc. I would say that if all three of those uh, are happening, that they can fast. Yes. Otherwise, I would like I said I would advise not to fast generally for someone with anorexia, because I think it's suffic pikuach nefesh, and we can't know where it's going to end. You simply cannot know where it's going to end, and it could be bad. One last point on this, I'm sorry, it's a long answer, is that unfortunately I've seen uh, in certain books and places, uh, and I've also heard, post who paskin to eat and or drink and That is generally a bad idea. In other words, that is a manifestation of the eating disorder. You're, like you're playing into the hands of the eating disorder. If you think the person needs to eat and drink, then they should eat and drink regularly. You know, if you're eating and drink bishurim, that is exactly what you do when you have an eating disorder. Meaning you're in control, you eat small portions, you know, etc. you so that might trigger the eating disorder as much as not fasting, as much as fasting in the first place. So therefore, mm-hmm. paskining shurim for someone with an eating disorder, I think is not a good idea. It's not not a good idea at all and could potentially trigger the eating disorder once again.
1: Okay. Thank you for that very detailed and important answer. I want to move on to something else because perhaps even more problematic at times, I would wonder, perhaps you'll disagree with me, than rabbis not knowing about dictating halacha based on mental illness, is them not knowing about pastoral counseling based on mental illness. The reason I say it might be even more dangerous is that many rabbis realize they may not be competent to rule halachically. but I've seen many times that many rabbis who are not trained in psychology of any sort, they don't know what they're dealing with, may give advice to people who have serious mental illnesses and they treat it as just another case of talking to the rabbi for advice and they can give very dangerous advice. Do you agree that's a problem as well on something which needs to be treated, needs to be taken care of?
0: Well, absolutely. Unfortunately. Um, I agree. I agree very much. Um, I've also come across, you know, suck from rabbis who once again, I mean, look, I'm going to say this. Rabbanim, like my, my people, you know, our people, they're good people. Most of them are, are good people who care and give them their time, and effort to help other individuals. And many times, at, you know, like absolutely they don't get any, any money for it. They don't, you know. So that's, I think the majority of rabbis, you know, are, are good public servants. But the fact is that even though they mean well in this field, many times they, they mess up in a very big way, And uh, as a result of that, they trip up the individual that they're trying to help. So I can give several examples of that, you know, like, um, I mean, I can give you one from this very morning, I got an email. The email said like this, it was an email from a therapist. And the therapist said, I have uh, someone uh, who belongs to the Haredi community. This individual is suffering from uh, PTSD. And the thing that helps her get through uh, the trauma sometimes, is being on their phone and playing like a game or something. This person, this individual, didn't know what to do on Shabbos. So she asked her rabbi from within the Haredi community, and the rabbi said, absolutely not, you can't use your phone. Okay, so you might say, all right, so he said not to use the phone. Like, what's the big deal? You might say, okay, what's the discussion about the phone? And is it their right? Is it their And you can discuss that, of course. But at the end of the day, you might say, okay, so what did he say to do? You no, know, so he, he said to daven, to pray. And he said also to uh, take your pills and is all everything will be fine. What's the problem? The problem is that the reason that this person was looking to use their phone was not just because it helped them get through the trauma, it's because that just using the pills, a lot of times the person would overdose on the pills. They would take a double or triple, you know, what they were supposed to take in order to calm themselves down. And of course, that would have sometimes very dangerous consequences from a health perspective to that individual. So what does this teach us? This teaches us something very, very significant, which I want to emphasize over here. And I want to, I want to emphasize it, if it's okay, with another story. I hope it's not confusing. No, please. There was a woman who called me uh, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago, and she asked me what to do on Shabbat because she was suffering from an eating disorder and anxiety and depression. Um, maybe some OCD, I'm not sure. Anyway, so I asked, well, okay, what do you do during the week when you have like, uh, you know, like, you know, when these things come to you and you want to, you know, calm down or whatever. So she said, I do uh, two things. I uh, take a hot shower, a hot bath or whatever. And I also, um, you know, I, I listen to music. I said, okay. And so what's, what's the problem? She said, I can't do those things on Shabbat. I said, okay, well, you've had this for X amount of time before you called me. So I'm wondering what did you do on Shabbat before you called me? Like, what would you do until now? So she said she would do one of two things. She would either induce vomiting. That would help her to, like, you know, uh, release sort of tension. Or she would cut herself, not in a suicidal way, in a non-suicidal way. But sometimes people do that. They, like, cut into the flesh. And it helps, in a sense, release tension also for them uh, in that way. Putting aside whether those things are even better on Shabbat to do, you know, than, what they, than, than running a hot bath or, uh, you know, putting that aside what the story taught me and what is important for us to realize as rabbis is that it's not only about whether you allow a certain uh, heter or not, give a leniency or don't give a leniency. What we need to understand is that this individual needs a coping mechanism of some sort. And if you don't give them coping mechanism A, they will simply resort to coping mechanism B. So I can either allow the hot shower Or the phone, but if I don't, the result is induced vomiting and self harm. So you know it's not like there's a choice not to do either. There is no choice. You have to choose for the person what the best way for them to get better and what the best way for them to handle things, both halachically and in terms of their health. So here too, right with the woman in the beginning, right? You could say the person just take your pills. But you have to understand that if you don't give the head of the phone, the result is that instead the person is doing something else, which can be very, very harmful for them. So back to your first question, right? Rabbis need to learn a lot about mental health. Amongst other things, they need to learn that if they are not there to help the individual get through whatever they're going through, then that individual is seeking help a different way, in whatever way they know best, in whatever way they can handle things, and afterwards, if the person self-harms or even worse, takes their own life, then I'm not trying to say it's the rabbi's fault, but I do think that the rabbi could have done things or could have helped out in certain ways to alleviate certain stresses and help with certain processes, you know, so that the person didn't get that far, didn't get, that, get to that situation that is already already so bad. So we have a lot that we can do, but we need to learn the topic, the field. We don't have to get a degree. But we do need to learn about the field and understand how the mind works and how these disorders work.
1: What you just said, Ravioni, reminds me in a very different way of the well-known story of Rav Brisker when somebody asked him if she were allowed to use milk for the four cups of wine. And he said no, and he gave her a large amount of money, much more than to pay for wine. And when he was asked, why did you give so much money? He goes, because obviously she also can't afford meat. It's not just a matter of not affording oh. wine. In the same way, you have to hear not only the question that's being asked, but what is the undercurrent below the question, which also allows for it.
0: 100%. 100%.
1: You mentioned, and I agree, that the vast majority of rabbis and clergy people are well-meaning, they're doing God's work, we're really trying to do the best we can. I do think, however, there are some who are sometimes infected with arrogance, that because I'm a Tamil chacham, or I aspire to be a Tamil chacham, I also know about things that they actually don't know anything about. And therefore, you see it sometimes, I think, in some yeshivot, you see it in other places as well, where rabbis simply don't, as they say, stay in their lane. They start advising advice, which is extraordinarily counterproductive, thinking that they're keeping the person on the Torah path. Is it important that all rabbis learn in terms of pastoral counseling what they don't know so that they can effectively advise people that this is not for me to talk about, I can't be here, you need to talk to a professional in a different field?
0: yeah yeah absolutely i um i couldn't agree more (laughs) you know if there's one thing that i would hope um it's that you know i mean i i'm starting you know like this uh, machon called magali nefesh in order to train rabbis in uh, mental health uh and halach or mental health and pastoral counseling but if no one if people don't want to take my course that's fine (laughs) i would just hope that they wouldn't talk about these issues at all sometimes because uh you know even though they try to help uh, they could just be doing harm. And I'll give you one example of that so that we understand. Uh, the, our, our problem is, and especially in the religious world, is that rabbis are many times turned to for advice and to be like a, like a helping hand or a shoulder to cry on, you know, et cetera. And even in yeshiva, right? We have like mashgichim and we have like individuals. We have like musr talks, right? So the difference between musr and mental health could get blurred sometimes right? like, uh, And certainly, I'm sure it did, meaning in the old days. So if a person, you know, a hundred years ago, if a person is standing in the base Midrash and and everyone's gone to breakfast and he's still saying Shema, because he wants to get the Kavanah just right, you know, so a mashgiach might easily say, he's such a Tzaddik, right? And today we might say, he has OCD, he's suffering, you know? So I'm not sure that the mashgiach realized necessarily that the kid was suffering, that he was, he was torturing himself every single morning, you know, to say the shema just right. And poor kid, you know, like uh, I, I'm. And it's it's not always tzedkus. It's not always piety that we're seeing. Uh, it's 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 suffering. So you know, definitely. And and the problem is that we we'll egg people on. You know, we'll say yes, keep on doing what you're doing. You're such a, you're doing this and that. No, bad idea. Yeah, I have women who call me with you know OCD nida questions or OCD kashrut questions. You know, and I just feel bad for them because, you know, obviously they're suffering a lot, you know, in terms of like, you know, these constant obsessive thoughts that uh, keep on coming into their heads and they can't control it. And they keep on thinking they're doing something wrong. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's sad, you know, but we have to help. That's the point. You know, so a rabbi needs to be careful not to reinforce destructive or hurtful or, or unhealthy uh, behaviors and for that, yeah, it's good if he, as you put it, stays in his own lane, or at least learns a little bit about uh, what all these things are, so that he's able to give the proper response.
1: I want to ask you about your new initiative in just a moment. What you just raised now raises another question for me, though. What do you do, or perhaps I should ask, what's a healthy approach? You give the example of somebody who keeps saying Kriyat over and over because that person is suffering from OCD, and whereas 100 years ago they say, what an incredible topic, now we'd say he's suffering terribly— what do you do when halakha exacerbates existing mental illness or becomes a source for an OCD type of a attack, so to speak? Or the converse, when sometimes people might use religion as a soothing mechanism to help them in mental illness when they really need to go to a therapist or to a psychologist or a psychiatrist in order to deal with the problem. And they're using halakha or religion in general as a means to almost avoid that.
0: Right. What you're saying is, once again, correct. We need to be on. We need to be careful and wary not to get in the way as rabbis in terms of the. Men- Let me give you two examples of that. I'll give you one from the other side and then one from, from the side that you're mentioning. Sometimes rabbinim can be um, their advice can be hurtful to the therapeutic process, even from the other side. Sometimes a rabbi might say, "Oh, I'm going to come. I'm going to be very uh, sensitive uh, to the situation, and I'm going to give a heter leniency." And that leniency could also be very, very detrimental. So I, when I, for, when someone once asked me, and I'm sure this happens a lot, uh, what happens if someone is suffering from depression and doesn't have the koch to get up in the morning, doesn't have the strength to go and daven in the you know, and or daven at all, you know, like uh, what should we say? So the Allahic side of this is relatively simple because we're talking about a mitzvah to say, we're talking about a positive commandment. Mitzvah to say are easier to get out of, so to speak, if you're sick or if you're unwell, you know, so it's relatively easy for the rabbi to say, look, if you're suffering from depression and you need, you know, some time, you know, et cetera, you can't get out of bed, you know, feel free to stay in bed. You don't have to worry like you're letting God down or whatever, you know, et cetera, which seems like a nice
1: lenient. Understanding Very sensitive and approach. sensitive approach.
0: But when I, I remember when I first came to speak to uh, my friend, Dr. Shmuel Harris, And I I asked him this question. Uh, The uh, the answer halachically was obvious to me. But he actually looked at me and said, why are you saying that? I said, what do you mean, why am I saying that? Because the guy is unwell. He says, no, but a therapist might very well say to the person, you know, oh, that's a good goal to make. You know, get up in the morning, try to go to shul, you know, try to get him out of bed, try to use religion as a structure, which can be very, very helpful for a person, you know, who's suffering from depression. To kind of like uh, uh, rebuild their day, you know, in a way that uh, that is uh, therapeutic and helpful. So Judaism offers, I think, you know, something that's potentially, you know, tremendously valuable. The person has like a built-in structure in the alacha that sometimes helps to ground him in a way that you couldn't get in a secular society. And it would be unfortunate if the rabbi doesn't realize what that structure can do for the person so he comes trying to be sensitive and actually then the person will go to the therapist the therapist will say oh get up for davening and the guy will say but the rabbi said i don't have to go you know so so great so what did you do right so the rabbi here has done the wrong thing that's like we need to have like a kind of like a insert certain things or a lot of things maybe even uh, a back and forth and a relationship between the therapist and the rabbi and if that's true there, it's also true in the cases that you gave, meaning, yes, sometimes the rabbi Mahos might also be stringent uh, in a place where he shouldn't be stringent. So the rabbi says, you can't do X and Y and Z. And the therapist is, is convinced that that's the way to go and that's the thing to do. So I get called many times by therapists, uh, you know, because they want me to either give up sack or if can they send their patient over to me to ask, you know, for a psak because otherwise they can't move forwards with the therapy, you know, and they need to. Uh, We need to be very careful not to give psaakim that are irresponsible or are based on a lack of knowledge of the workings of mental health.
1: In terms of what you're describing, the cooperation, so to speak, between a rabbi and a therapist, there are situations, of course, where halakha and perhaps the consensus of the mental health community might actually be at odds. I know in the podcast I do with Tali Rosenbaum, Intimate Judaism, which talks about sex and Judaism, there are situations where, from a therapeutic perspective, the answer might be, do this. halachically. though, we might say you really shouldn't do that. Obviously, they can't always work together. That's, I guess, to be assumed. But what do you do in a situation like that, where the recommendation of a psychiatrist or psychologist is literally at odds with the recommendation of halacha, and you can't really bridge that?
0: It's a good question. I think that, um, I think that the only... Way to do it in those situations is just to tackle it again and again and again until a solution is found. What I mean by that, I'll, once again, I'll just, the best way to do it is to give an example. There's a condition called uh, trichotillomania. Trichotillomania is hair pulling disorder. It's basically a situation where a person pulls out their hairs. They might say, okay, that, that doesn't sound great, but it doesn't sound so bad. Yeah. But I, there was a young woman who sent me an email with pictures. Uh, the pictures were of her head and she had pulled out hair so she had like bald spots like all over her all over her head and uh it ruined her life like she she didn't feel she like feel she could go out you know to shop or to work or with friends unless she was wearing a hat but she didn't want to wear a hat all the time you know so um it basically meant that she was you know she had to stay indoors such a disorder could really can really ruin a person's life in 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 a lot of ways And that's, you know, a lot of times these things are just the beginning also, like it starts there and then it leads to other things and you're stuck at home, then you become agoraphobic or maybe you become depressed or all kinds of things. Anyway, besides the point, what helped her? The thing that helped her uh, to stop the hair pulling activity, behavior, uh, was to sew or crochet any of those things. And she wanted to know if she could do that on Shabbat. The answer is (laughs) no. In other words, the answer was at the end of the day, Sewing, crocheting, those are derihtas; those are Torah prohibitions. You know, and your situation, as bad as it is, is not a pikuach nefesh, not life-threatening. So, even though you want me to allow, you know, such actions, I I couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't just say it was okay. So, what's the what's the answer in that situation? Like I said, the answer is to tackle it again and again. What I mean by that is, so let's let's think together and search together to see what other behaviors might be something that you can do on Shabbat you know, but that would also help you with your issue. I understand that that's the only thing that you know of currently that helps you to deal with it, but maybe we can try other things. Let's think together what other things could be, maybe Dirabon and maybe rabbinic prohibitions on Shabbat, you know, that we could uh, use to do that. And once again, just to think outside the box and work again and again and again, and hopefully over time to find a solution.
1: Please tell me about your new initiative, the new macho you're setting up.
0: The way that I got to this whole topic originally was just uh, through questions that I got as a community rabbi from that i went to learn with my friend dr harris just to be able to answer these questions uh the result of that was that i realized that there was a need for a book and so we wrote a book together uh he and i the book <laughs> made me realize that there is a need for an ongoing assistance uh, to people with um, mental health concerns uh both in the pastoral areas so therefore similar to Mahon Pua, uh, if your listeners know what that is, about fertility and halakha. I thought there should be a machon, um, some institute for halacha and mental health. The goals of the institute are, uh, first and foremost, rabbinic training. After we have rabbis who are trained, we can also open up a hotline um, and have people, you know, because right now I'm answering questions all the time, but it would be helpful if other people uh, were trained to do so. People could come to them. We could also... Hopefully start putting out more and more information for the general public, help train in halakhic areas, uh, or give halachic knowledge, I would say, to therapists um, and other mental health professionals. You know, and we also want to talk about uh, you know, doing other, th- other grander things, like um, conventions and you know, being up to date about you know, the latest thing, articles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a few things.
1: It sounds very exciting. Is it for people who are training to be rabbis or is it for people who also already are rabbis who already have smicha?
0: Um, it's mostly for people who are already rabbis and are, are serving uh, in different places or not serving, whatever. Yes, it's about training people and giving them the tools and the abilities to understand uh, mental health concerns.
1: And if people listening are interested in finding out more, how can they reach this institute? Good question.
0: Uh, it's still like kind of like at the beginning stages. So if they really want to know more, I'm happy to just give my email, which is uh, ravioni, R-A-V-Y-O-N-I at gmail.com. For now, that'll do, and hopefully we'll have uh, something proper set up, and I'm happy then to give out uh, that email as well.
1: Well, Ravioni Rosenzweig, it's been an honor speaking with you, and the work you're doing, now I get a chance to speak to you in person about it. I've heard about it for a long time. It's always been very, it's just been very, very impressive, and it's so nice to know that there are rabbis who are doing what you're doing and that you're doing it in particular. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much. And I wish we were Fush Shlema. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit JewishCoffeehouse.com for other episodes of the Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamonides Minute, chokhmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more you'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop any time, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. on jewishcopyhouse.com.